some organizers on the line with us that uh, worked for the campaign um, in Iowa and, and elsewhere. And, you know, I've been talking with a lot of people who, who worked on the campaign, a lot of my former coworkers, about what they think went wrong inside of the campaign, especially in light of seeing all of these postmortems released by management, advisors, others. A lot of the focus of those postmortems have been on the power of the DNC, the influence of the corporate media, you know, some even you know, citing our electoral system at large. Um, and, you know, while these forces, you know, can't be denied, emphasizing them as the sole reason for our, our loss is really a disservice to our movement. You know, if we aren't willing to take stock of our internal failures, we're losing an opportunity to learn from what is like the largest political project uh, socialism has seen in America, I would say. Um, so with me, I've got Mia and Dimitri, Max is here. Hey, of course. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be uh, taking like a bit of a backseat for, for this episode. This is mostly Ben's story. I'm, I'm here mostly as a <laughs> producer and someone like a, like a stand in for the audience, like a, a rube, so to yeah. speak. Do you guys want to introduce yourselves? Mia? Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, <laughs> um, I'm Mia. I was an organizer in a couple of different states on the campaign um, before um, joining it in a more remote role. So um, I got to see a couple of different sides of the whole organizing process. Awesome. Now, what yeah. about you, Dimitri? Yeah, so I was an organizer on the ground uh, in Iowa for six months um, for the caucuses in Marshalltown was my home base, but I covered the five counties basically between uh, Ames and Cedar Rapids, sort of. Awesome. Um, yeah, Dimitri was in Iowa a lot earlier than, than I was, so he's going to be here to help fill us in on like the timeline and really everything that went on before I was there and, and later on as well. Both um, names, though. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so I mean, I think, I think when we when we talk about the internal problems on the campaign, we've got to start with what 
I see and what I think many of us see as like a foundational issue, right? And that many of those who were making crucial decisions on the campaign didn't really act you know, in accordance with what the ultimate goals were of the campaign, you know, and that essentially we were attempting to amass a movement large enough to take control of the Democratic Party. And, you know, some mm -hmm. might say that that seems like a far-flung, like, leftist idea or something, but it really is the entire basis for our theory of change. It's the basis for Bernie calling himself an existential threat or, you know, like when he would refer to himself as the organizer in chief. It's the reason why we won Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada. Um, not me, us even, right? Just like even that as a slogan is really, really hammering on the fact that we've got to build a grassroots movement to get some semblance of institutional power. That's how we were going to affect anything like the Green New Deal, Medicare for all, et cetera, et cetera. So like while I think because of this rhetoric, many people would have expected that we had a field program to match, right? That we had many field organizers across the country facilitating a large, large number of volunteers who were brought out precisely because of this message. And the campaign management made decisions and pursued strategies along the way that really undercut the ability of our field program and of our volunteers to secure delegates, to secure state wins, and to build that movement uh, that would last past the election and affect the changes that we were organizing off of. Um, and to talk about organizing models in particular, right? The campaign was torn between two of them. You know, first, uh, I think we can call the organizing model that was favored among field staff, deep organizing, right? This is the model that was in place for the most part in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, you know, somewhat in California as well. And deep organizing calls for investments to be placed directly into hiring field organizers, opening field offices, and mounting you know, a long-term effort to engage communities, you know, and, and really emphasizing those that have been excluded from traditional electoral politics. What do you, what do you guys think about that as just like a general assessment of the organizing strategy that worked to fulfill the campaign's message? Um, because this is what we had in Iowa and you're both a part of that. So what do you think in general about, about this assessment? Yeah, I, mean, I think. Yeah, I think um, that sort of deep organizing that you're talking about really, it's kind of based on like I guess a little bit of like relational organizing or almost more of like a community organizing approach where we're really mm -hmm. sort of building like a you know a network within that community around you know community leaders um, so and really building like know. deep relationships with people. Or for people who didn't work on the campaign, like what would that like entail? Like deep organizing, would it be like uh, canvassing or, or going out in person to like maybe your neighborhood, or, or, or would it be like uh, phone banking? Like so, let's just let's just define like what the role yeah. of a field organizer is. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I mean, I guess we can all sort of chime in here, but I know from like the day to day sort of uh, expectations or duties would be you know, outside of just your own like canvassing and phone banking, which is obviously a part of it for everybody, but a big part of the phone banking and work that you're doing is actually, you know, recruiting people to be volunteers. Mm -hmm. And 
um, that really the sort of linchpin of that is these sort of deep conversations that you have with people where you try to, you know, find out what's, you know, getting them invested essentially in the movement and try to mm -hmm. sort of escalate them into taking on some responsibility and, and some volunteer leadership um, duties. Um, the key sort of corner piece of that, I guess, is like what we call like one-to-ones. Uh, you have one-on-one -on -one meetings with uh, a staff member and a volunteer. And I guess, Ben, you could probably talk about this a little bit more because you had one as yeah, a volunteer. Yeah, I started as a volunteer. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so like the, the process for kind of developing volunteers in I.O. from start to finish was generally, you know, through a phone bank of Democrats or likely supporters, you would call them, gauge their interest in their, uh, in, in seeing Bernie win, right? And if they seemed particularly enthusiastic, you would try to schedule a one-on-one -on -one with them where you would meet in person to uh, establish uh, a connection, right? And from there, you would get them to come out to Canvas, you would get them to come out to phone bank, you would get them to call like their families and friends uh, to get them to support Bernie as well. That'd be like relational organizing. And like ultimately you would get sustained long-term uh, voter interaction for this person to, to do voter interaction. And, you know, eventually like become like a precinct captain or something on caucus night. So that was the, that was the work. And that it's, it's a big undertaking to kind of have enough staff to develop those relationships with a very, very, very large volunteer base that we had in Iowa. Um, so, Dimitri, you were there in Iowa from the very beginning. What did it look like when you first got hired? Well, <laughs> longer yeah. than me. <laughs> what did it look like when you got hired in Iowa? Yeah, so I was hired in early August, August 6th, my first day. Um, and uh, at that stage, we had an all-staff field meeting my second day of work, and we had, I think, 35 uh, mm -hmm. field staff members, including management. Um, so it was really like 25 to 30 or so. And, um, you know, at that stage, it was really just getting through that sort of summer phase. I think you were a little bit more familiar with. There was a lot of like, mm -hmm. the, the barnstorms, um, which are kind of like community meetings where you try to sort of get people involved in the campaign, but they're a little bit less um, formal, like phone yeah. banks or canvases. You have them at like um, a bar, so people will come. Right, <laughs> right. Um, or a barn, if you're in rural Iowa. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but so, yeah, that, that's basically what the campaign had been doing kind of through the summer. And then we were sort of transitioning into more kind of traditional field organizing, canvassing, phone banking, recruiting volunteers yeah. in August and September. And so that's kind of when I came on um, at that stage the field organizers were covering fairly large turfs. Like I said, my original mm -hmm. turf was five counties. Um, I was doing kind of rural-ish organizing. I don't want to like steal rural organizing valor from <laughs> like 12 counties. Um, but uh, so I think by Early to mid-September, though, I think it became clear to me that we weren't quite at the capacity that we should be at. Um, like we, did, we didn't have just, enough field organizers to basically 
to, to cover all of the ground and to work with all the volunteers to the degree that, that right. they needed to be. Well, and I'm sure like, you know, for instance, you know, I mean, in uh, urban organizing, it's a little yeah. bit different because people, it's very easy to like centralize activities, right? Yeah. You yes. can say, hey, like there's a canvas happening in downtown Des Moines. You can drive 15 minutes mm -hmm. from West Des Moines to come mm -hmm. canvas, mm -hmm. right? But in my turf, if I'm out of working out of my apartment in Marshalltown or my car in Marshalltown sometimes, <laughs> and um, or in, you know, wherever I am, and I have to yeah. say, oh, there's a canvas happening an hour and a half away on the other side of my turf. Um, mm -hmm. I'm trying to recruit people remotely for it. Sometimes in areas that I've never even been to, yeah. personally, um, yeah. and trying to maintain relationships with people that I may not have met in person yet, mm -hmm. um, trying to schedule like one-on-ones, those kind of things can be really difficult. Um, and so um, we needed more capacity than we had at that stage. And yeah. I know, you know we've talked about this before, but like in that time period, um, where I was covering four to five counties, depending on kind of what it was. Um, Pete and Warren, um, especially Pete, um, had like four organizers in that turf. Yeah, covering the they staffed up, they both staffed up very early um, and were, we kind of had like full coverage um, or more full coverage than we did in terms of organizers working with volunteers like across the state. But eventually like through hiring freezes, and you know lifting and, and implementing hiring freezes the campaign essentially grew to scale um in like mid november early december i would say like i was hired in like october and once we got there you know i think we really saw what was possible with a robust field team right we could effectively uh capacitate all of the volunteers and really expand voter interaction, right? We were able to do community canvases, like go to farmer's markets with like six people and talk, just talk to the crowd and, and get people to sign commit to caucus cards so we could call them and follow up and make sure that they were gonna come out and caucus for Bernie. You know, we were able to do community canvases. We were able to spread a network of just traditional canvassing wider than, than we, were, we would have had we not had more field staff. Um, we, essentially we were just building to scale, right? And it came at a point where we really needed it, especially after like Bernie having his heart attack what was it, in October, right? October 3rd. You remember the yeah, exact I, date? <laughs> well, no, I it was actually organizing a town. Bernie was supposed to be in my turf that week. Oh, holy shit. Yeah, oh, it was damn. not fun. Is there a meme about October 3rd or something? There should be. Like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Uh, it's a sacred a sacred day um but yeah i mean we we got to the scale that we needed to and with this you know came a constituency team to focus on like ethnic and racial minorities uh and organizing organizing those people mostly in des moines where there's a large non-english speaking refugee populations from like southeast asia a lot from from Africa, from Latin America, really from a lot of Bosnians as well. People who had never really been brought in by the four, every four years when, you know, there's just an onslaught of political campaigning in Iowa trying to get people out to the office. These demographics are like really traditionally ignored. And we developed a constituency team 
it wasn't necessarily easily developed, but we did get a constituency team in place to organize these voters. On top of that, you know, we also, around this same time, got our, um, our student organizing fully fleshed out, where we were active on, like, it was like 26 college campuses throughout the state, organizing those young voters that we know were very, very, very likely to support us. And because of all of this, we saw poll numbers start to rise after that dip in October when Bernie had his heart attack. There are a lot of reasons to, to thank for that rise, but just to speak specifically about organizing, it kind of is that those poll rises are those poll rises are in tandem with the hiring increases, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think. Yeah, I totally. Think and just to speak for a second to like why, um, you know, like why organizers on the ground as opposed to just like hiring up nationally or like mm -hmm. having a lot of remote volunteers or whatever, like, or you know, there's spending. a qualitative difference. Yeah, ad spending, like why not that, right? Well, mm -hmm. there is a qualitative difference between having people on the ground who are there to make, you know, connections in person with people mm -hmm. uh, versus another alternative. And I think that's really important to emphasize. Obviously, we were never going to staff up to the level where like, a staff member could knock every single door, right? Of yeah. the 500,000 that we knocked in January. But like mm -hmm. having, I don't know, just like, you know, several hours a day um, calling through our Iowa lists um, to mm -hmm. get people to come to our events. Um, mm -hmm. That requires not like getting on a phone bank, but rather like having numbers saved in your phone, having those one-on-ones, like mm -hmm. texting people constantly back and forth. <laughs> like it really does. I know it sounds kind of like trivial, but no, a fair um, amount of organizing is like badgering your volunteers. Yeah, <laughs> and that's what we did, so. And, that, I, and that's what we did. But, I literally but no, just cleaned up my phone contacts. Like I had like oh my 300 God, I, all uh, <laughs> I haven't done that yet. I, whenever I had a volunteer, I would just save them by their first name and then their last name. Bernie. Bernie. <laughs> so Josh, I, like, Bernie, Mary, Bernie. <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> but I type Bernie into my phone, it's just like so many, so many contacts. Mm -hmm. But that really does go to show that like, this is what we needed to win, right? Yeah. To develop those one-on-one -on -one connections with people and to really just overall have a structure that was easy for them to come in and out of and to give their all, to not have to worry about the stuff that organizers were doing what, 50, 60 hours a week as a full-time job. You know, mm -hmm. the fact that we had that staff placed there to have that structure goes to show that that's, that contributes a lot to our win in Iowa. And I, I wanted to speak to like sort of the importance of like those one-on-one -on -one relationships and, mm -hmm. and why it's so important to build those. Um, I know I, the staff, Iowa staff has talked about this a lot, you know, just comparing to like the P campaign, we were talking about how much they had staffed up and sort of the mm -hmm. tactics that they were using was mm -hmm. very much like relational um, until like November. They weren't doing any canvassing or phone banking yeah. in like traditional sense. Um, and what that does is, you know, you can build these really close relationships with somebody. And once you've actually gotten your like kind of foot in the door, so to speak, mm -hmm. it makes sort of the like messaging and reaching out to people mm -hmm. and, and that sort of stuff a lot easier. You can break through kind of like media mm -hmm. narratives a lot easier. Which, which is you know, particularly important for the kind of campaign we're trying to run, right? If, if right. like we talked about, if the central like thesis of the Bernie campaign is that we can win by expanding the electorate and, you know, it being that yeah. our oppositional forces are like the corporate media, the power of the DNC, the only thing that can like effectively counter that 
is this kind of deep community organizing that right. was was necessary for our wins. Um, that's that was generally the craziest part about going to Iowa, just like meeting real pizza boarders <laughs> in person. Like guys, they exist. They're just all in Iowa. They're freaks. They did a good job there. <laughs> the pizza boarders, the pizza organizers use that like relational organizing yeah. for evil. You know, it was like, because they are... <laughs> They are, we've, I've said this before, but like they're literally, they all look and act exactly. Yeah, they're little like, clones. They're all preps. It was so It's some sort of mold that they're they just like, like inject the human embodiment into. of a knee-high sock and like <laughs> boat shoes. Like boating shoes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, yeah, but, but again, like it, it, it worked for Pete. Like Pete had a lot of organizers. They're doing a lot of rural organizing. And these are not just like boat shoes of people. They're also like, <laughs> Pete, Pete carried rural counties. There are a lot of reasons for that. You know, you could talk about campaign messaging, campaign strategy, but to keep it focused specifically on field, he had a lot of organizers out there and you can't discount the difference that that makes. And it makes twice as much for us, for the goals that we're trying to accomplish and mm -hmm. for the campaign that we were running. And I think, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of examples that illustrate what the organizing operation in Iowa accomplished for us, right? We knocked what five hundred thousand doors just in January. We had Crazy. was it two thousand between two thousand and three thousand out of state volunteers basically come into Iowa in the last two weeks, right? Yeah. It, Our it, office was a zoo. <laughs> It was crazy, right? But again, like we we were there. Possible to work there. Yeah, it, it's it has put so many lines in my face. It's but awesome. Like, it, <laughs> we, we you couldn't have done it without a a long standing team of trained full time organizers, right? It, it just it would not it would not be able, the system would be completely overwhelmed if we were not there to give it mm -hmm. somewhat of a direction, right? And mm -hmm. and to speak specifically about like what happened during the caucuses that that proved the the theory of change that Bernie was espousing, that our campaign was built around. And I think a lot about the satellite caucuses that we have mostly to thank our constituency team for, right? We had sat satellite caucuses were, they were permitted by the party for the, the first time ever, you know, to allow for a wider participation in the caucuses because, you know, it's, it's, it's one night, two hours, three hours, specific time. The party granted for there to be satellite caucuses held on the same day, but at a varying time. So, so we would allow for wider participation, right? So the campaign managed for there to be satellite caucuses for Asian American Pacific Islanders, for Latinx people, for um, you know, immigrants, refugees, for Arab Muslim people, generally based around there not being, um, there being a, a, a language spoken other than English, right? Because caucuses can be very chaotic and dense even hard for people who, <laughs> you know, have English as a first language to understand. So to have this be accessible for people who, who don't speak English or, you know, want to go to whatever, a mosque to talk to caucus or something, right? We organized these satellite caucuses and Bernie won every single one of them, right? We expanded the electorate into communities that were traditionally not organized and we swept every single satellite caucus. It mm -hmm. is a big reason why we ended up tying. I don't I have, what are the delegate counts for Iowa? Does anyone know yet? <laughs> we won. We won, we, oh, we, won, we won the it's popular vote. It's gonna be like locked in a vault and like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, <laughs> underground it's an, it's somewhere. On it's on Epstein Island. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <Hillary>. <laughs> but like, 
I mean, we won, we won the popular vote by 6,000 votes. And there was a time when those, those caucus results were just like slowly trickling in. And I remember looking at the New York Times, that stupid little needle they had about <laughs> who was likely to win and who wasn't. And they were counting state delegate elects. And the whole time we were ahead of Pete in the popular vote, but Pete was ahead of us in state delegate elects. After the satellite caucuses were factored in, the needle broke. <laughs> it broke the, the needle. Fucked up. <laughs> the needle got fucked. It got wrecked. <laughs> and that was because of the satellite caucuses. Um, anything else? Like, I want to move to what happened after Iowa, but I want, I guess what we should say here is that this model that we are, we are accounting our wins for, right? We should say that this model was essentially replicated in New Hampshire and Nevada. And yeah, I know you have a lot of like, you have a lot of perspective on what happened on the Vegas Strip because of this kind of deep organizing. Do you want to talk about that? Because you know more about it than, than I do. Oh, I, I mean, I wouldn't say I have a ton of perspective on it. I wasn't actually there. So um, I, more I, than I, have, me. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like I think a major tenet of Bernie's entire, like I was just, you know, reading a bunch of stuff about like Bernie's past, like as a legislator and, you know, as a politician and like the whole time when we talk about Bernie's consistency and like his messaging, right, that hasn't changed over the past 40 years, he is hammering over and over again, the importance of um, combining electoral work with uh, like a broader movement of like worker power and like mm -hmm. multiracial, multi-generational movements. And that means that you have to include that when you are doing electoral work. You cannot just land on a plane in a state, you know, a few months before the election and think that you are going to like um, elect your candidate and then leave, right? It's much deeper than that. And you have to be on the ground. Yeah. Um, and I think what we saw in Nevada with the Vegas strip workers, the taxi drivers, um, was an unprecedented level of incorporating labor organizing into being folded into um, campaign organizing. So like, yeah, you know, there was a massive amount of fear mongering about Medicare for all in, mm -hmm. um, what which union was it again? I forget the, the exact one, the, the culinary workers union. Yeah, yeah. And we countered that just by, I mean, I think surely by the power of the conversations, the numbers of conversations mm -hmm. we had, um, relational outreach. So asking people after we have a conversation with them to reach out to their networks, their friends, their workers, mm -hmm. um, and spreading it out that way. And we were able to win, um, you know, resoundingly. It was a complete blowout in Nevada. And yeah. um, I think, I mean, we'll talk about this later, but is it a lot of the reason why we didn't have similar success in states mm -hmm. with maybe like somewhat similar makeups or like heavy Latinx communities like in Texas um, mm -hmm. is because we didn't have that level of organizing. Yeah, and, and just, just to speak on like one second about that specific instance, right? Like this shows how that person-to-person -person organizing can counter bad faith advertising, right? Because there was a lot of advertising about how Medicare for all would actually be bad for unions. It took a lot of our organizers going in, talking to the rank and file of that union, and, and if they weren't already supporting Medicare for all, tell them, you're like, this is why the ads you're seeing that say Medicare for all is going to take your healthcare away are wrong. You know, in fact, it actually is going to give your union way more leveraging power against your employee, against your employer, right? That would not have been as effective had we not had that staff on the ground, right? So, I want to go into what we see 
happen next in the campaign. After our wins in Iowa, New Hampshire, and Nevada, where we've got constituency teams, we've got longstanding organizing efforts, we've got you know union organizing, and we've got student organizing, where we had our bases covered in terms of reaching the widest amount of voters and building our movement out as wide as we possibly can, where we're essentially fulfilling the theory of change that was put forward by the campaign. We then move into, in, Super, in South Carolina, and Super Tuesday states and on, the campaign made a decision to heavily, heavily rely on a practice known as distributed organizing, which is very different than what we were doing in these earlier states that we won. Uh, this model, you know, it shifts the role of these paid, trained, full-time field organizers. It shifts that role onto volunteers um, to basically do all of what a paid staff was doing, 50, 60 hours a week. Now, this decision really served to undercut the ability of our field program and our volunteers to secure delegates, even state wins. And like most importantly, it effectively capped the amount of people our movement could hold and in no way could it fulfill that theory of change that we had to if we were going to win and implement any of the policies we wanted to to see here right so when it comes to distributed organizing i saw a bit of it after i was redeployed to michigan uh, when i got on the ground in michigan there were eight field staff top to bottom and just to give a bit of context here, there were, what guys, what, 200 field staff just in Iowa? Yeah. In Michigan, more. a cr more maybe, yeah. In Michigan, we had no constituency team. We had no student organizing. Um, we barely had like a communications team or like a political team securing endorsements. All of these roles were shared by two people at the top, and then field, the field team, right, field organizers, regional field directors, <laughs> like, like me, there were six for the entire state that we needed to win, right? We had to win Michigan for, for a lot of reasons, right? But- And you were sent there a few weeks before the election, you know? Yeah, and that's also, we got there five weeks before the election. So yeah, no long-term organizing, even if we had sent 60 people there or something, right? Of course it'd be better, but you don't have the time to develop those long-standing relationships that got us those wins in the earlier states. I have plenty more to share on Michigan, but I want to know what your interactions with the campaign were after we switched to this distributed model. Where, one more thing here, like, these volunteers were essentially doing the work of field organizers and they were all assisted by like remote, a remote team of paid staff to walk them through training like to walk them through like how to do volunteer recruitment how to like launch canvases phone banking etc cetera, etc cetera. but what were your experiences with the distributive model dimitri do you want to go first uh you can go first since you were you were actually part of the remote organizing team right cool. um at a point yeah i mean i guess to go back a little bit like um, after wrapping up with Iowa, I mean, I think we maybe we'll, we'll go into this a little later. Um, but you know, a lot of staff was laid off. Um, they decided they didn't. Two thirds of the that. staff. Just two thirds for... of the staff. Yeah. Um, which was a shock to us. I think, mm -hmm. um, a lot of us expected that we would all be sent to the next States at a minimum. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, it was a little strange to see that like 
even when I was first applying for the job, that the listings were all only for the first four states. Um, <laughs> and that was like a little red flag early on that mm -hmm. uh, I didn't really pay attention to. But um, after we realized two thirds of us were being laid off after Iowa, you know, we had a nice call with our campaign manager. Um, <laughs> Fash, we were Fash campaign manager, Fashikir. Name, name, name. Name and shame. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, and it, it wasn't a very clear process. We all kind of assumed that given the scale of the program, uh, the program, the campaign, um, mm -hmm. we were in a place where we were gaining momentum. And of course, mm -hmm. like we're going to need every single step person we can get. We need more than that. Mm -hmm. um, and to our, to our disbelief, um, we were sent home um, after Iowa, essentially. But, you know, I like, continued organizing um, on a more informal scale and like was in direct contact in other states with um, Bernie Victory captains who are awesome, by the way, like they're amazing people who decide to dedicate so, a good portion of hours to the campaign. So Bernie Victory captains is is the term for the, the volunteers who have essentially agreed to take on the field organizing role. That's, right. So if, if we refer to Bernie Victory captains, it's a whole program where, I mean, they were given training they were given like pamphlets to read beforehand and asked to do i mean i mean we can go into what the victory captain was because should we do that all, now yeah let's do it now the, okay. the what the bernie victory captains did was amazing right distributed organizing is not horrible but it has to be paired with a robust field team on the ground it's it's supplemental to a fully staffed field organization right what bernie victory captains were doing specifically was they signed up to take this role. They were asked to do uh, basically one event a week, whether that be like, yeah, most of them were launching canvases, right? They had to do their phone own banks, yeah. in phone banks. They had to do their own volunteer recruitment for it. And when you do volunteer recruitment, you call someone, you sign them up, right? On like Monday for a canvas on Saturday, people will just say yes to fucking whatever. So then you've got to do a round of confirmation calls to make sure people are actually going to show up. And if they say no, then you shift them into the next one, right? It, it's, it's day by day work. You, you're guiding people for them to show up for this canvas, right? It's a lot of work. They were supposed to do that, supposed to launch a canvas once every week on top of taking group Zoom calls about updates on the campaign, you know, other, other stuff. And it was all kind of based through like Slack. <laughs> it's like, it like all just like so many emojis and just like, just shit like that. Where, yeah, so that, that's the Bernie Victory Captain program. I want to add also really quickly, yeah. like another testament to how important it is to have on the ground organizing is that the drop off rate of these programs was incredibly high. Mm -hmm. I don't know about um, the numbers for like Bernie Victory Captain or whatever, but the general rule of thumb in remote organizing is that you will have, you know, a hundred people sign up for your webinar, you'll have 40 attend and maybe 20 will make it to the actual thing that you recruited them for. And that's because of how the internet works. You know, people mm -hmm. sign up for shit, they forget about it, whatever. And you have organized on the ground to call them up personally. To say, follow hey. up. So much of organizing is just following up with people, right? right? Which people did do on the remote team, to be fair. Yeah. Like it was an element of it, but who's like, it is so much more likely for someone to say yes to you if you've met with them beforehand, if yeah. they know you, if they've been to your office, if there even is an office to show up to. It makes exactly. a huge difference. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. I just wanted to add too, because I sort of had an experience of being like a Bernie victory captain, I guess, after right. Iowa. <laughs> um, I, 
so sort of anyway. So I, I do just want to know about like the redeployment process, kind of what you were saying is that we were all expecting to be redeployed and that's kind mm -hmm. of maybe not a hundred percent of us, but like a large chunk anyway. Yeah. And that we, that the campaign management really hadn't intimated that like two thirds of us were going to be laid off. Um, mm -hmm. They had made hints like, you know, about 50% of us wouldn't make it through like April, you know, yeah. um, that's kind of what we expected. But um, on top of that, you know, when we were shifted to those March states, kind of like Ben was saying, you know, they were sent to Michigan five weeks out from the primary there with no existing infrastructure. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us, at least me, just sort of naturally assumed that the campaign had been building infrastructure in those states while we were in Iowa and that we would just be slotted in basically. And we're talking about stuff as like basic as like an office. Didn't have an office yeah. when we went to Michigan. And it wasn't just Michigan, this was Illinois. You, you experienced this in Illinois where you were, that there was a lack of campaign infrastructure. Yeah. Same thing in Texas, like states we needed to win. Ben, talk about had, working a kebab shop. <laughs> we had none of that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I actually really liked working in the kebab shop. I was, in, was I was in Dearborn in Michigan uh, as a regional field director, didn't have an office. So we were just working in a kebab shop. It was really good. And one, one thing I want <laughs> to, I gained a lot of weight in Dearborn also. <laughs> um, <laughs> I do want to like specify here is that I don't want there to be a misunderstanding on the part of anyone that we are like pissed off that we didn't have jobs. Like, of course, you know, we would have mm -hmm. liked to remain uh, employed by the campaign longer, but none of us were under the illusion that this would be like a career, right? It's, you're working <laughs> on a campaign. We're not expecting Fuck to no, be- no, I would hate to have this as a yeah, career. Yeah, no, yeah, would never. <laughs> <laughs> I would, yeah. Is I that never. bad that I said that? <laughs> um, but, but really, I mean, like, we are talking about this not because we are like disgruntled employees, but because the only way Bernie would have won and the way that we would have built the, the large movement that we need here is through this deep organizing model, right? We are not disgruntled employees. We are like disgruntled Bernie supporters. <laughs> we are disgruntled, but we're not we're disgruntled, disgruntled because of that. Yeah. Yeah. No, like, look, fire me. Like if, if I had been fired and five people have been redeployed in my place, absolutely, yes. right? A hundred percent. That's, that is, that's the angle we're coming from here. I just, I just want to stress that, but yeah. Dimitri, will you talk about what it was like, because you, can you talk a bit more about what it was like to be on the volunteer end? Of yeah, um, it was weird. Um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I, so just coming from being in Iowa and the way that we engaged with our volunteers uh, and yeah. the amount of responsibility that we entrusted them or expected them to take on, um, I was not really prepared, I guess, for that switch to sort of like the distributed uh, model. So, you know, when I came there back to Illinois, um, A, I was surprised that we didn't have any staff already um, and that we were still holding like barnstorms like four weeks out from the primary. Um, and then, you know, I volunteered. I was like, hey, I'll be a Canvas captain, which is what we would have had in Iowa. What's your heart? Um, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> Bless your heart. Uh, That's awesome. I would be too bitter. Um, <laughs> I got fired I just, by the campaign and still went and volunteered. So <laughs> That's true. We no. both yeah. did. Yeah. I, I, I <laughs> so I volunteered to be a Canvas captain and you know, helped launch some canvases out of the mm -hmm. campaign's only station location in like the kind of majority black neighborhoods on the south side, which was in Anglewood. And um, 
you know, I was the only ex-staff member in Chicago. So just, God, that's crazy. Me. Um, which, you know, I was like, hey, I already live here. Like, why don't you just hire me? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, but it didn't happen. Anyway, um, so I volunteered to be a campus captain. And the first week that it happened, I actually just kind of expected that the campaign was doing recruitment. For, for the canvas um like i because that's what we would have done in iowa that we would have been calling through our volunteer recruitment list you yeah. know following up with old leads getting people confirming people and so i texted the organizer like day of day before or something like that i was like hey how many people are, am i expecting at this thing and they're like oh i don't know um yeah I think like, that's yeah. crazy you, you just you cannot organize in those circumstances and like really what, most importantly here like you cannot create the conditions for organizing that can prove the thesis of the Bernie campaign, that can do what need to be done to win, right? right? You just can't. And something that I think about a lot was when we were in Michigan, we had a huge list of people who expressed some level of interest in the Bernie Victory Captain program, right? These are people, like, like you said, Mia, a lot of people who are just like, yeah, I guess I'm kind of interested in this. And their email ends up on a list, their phone number ends up on a list but they don't follow through with any of the like remote trainings that they're required to take. Right. So we have this huge list of people. And from this list of like hundreds, we had a handful of burning victory captains because the ask is so high to, to essentially beat brass and be a field organizer because that is such a high ask The campaign served to really alienate a lot of people who were willing to do some amount of work, not, not all of the work, but some amount of it. And from the work they did actually get out of Bernie Victory Captains, it just could not match the performance of what a trained, paid field organizer could have done, right? So yeah. it is- Not because like volunteers can't do that work though, just no. like quickly. You know, like people have full-time jobs, they have families. Yeah. Obviously you can only do that type of work if you're being paid full time. Yeah, yeah, no, it, it, it would be impossible to do that work. Uh, to the degree it needed to be done, if you have just like one part-time job, you know, like it's, yeah. very, it's a lot of work. And you know, this goes without mentioning, we had no student organizations in Michigan, in many, many Super Tuesday states, mm. Texas, Washington, you know, there were none of those, you know, for even just, when it comes to not even expanding our base, but just turning out our base, if we're not active on high school campuses, on college campuses, working with students, what what we're full of shit we're yeah. full of shit <laughs> right well, I, I went to and I, you know i went to lansing to volunteer the week of the michigan primary you know, like the like basically three days before the primary mm -hmm. and uh, i actually wasn't aware before i got there that they didn't have any student organizing going on they had some student staff come in like the last couple of days to do mm -hmm. a turnout essentially um, but I remember seeing videos, you know, the, the campaign kept posting videos of like the three, four hour long lines at the city yeah. office for students. And I was like, we guess could have been registering them for weeks. But, um, but Demetrius, there was, it wasn't like, not even, a, not even like a matter of getting them registered to vote. There was early voting in Michigan. There was yeah. essentially early voting in Michigan where in Michigan had instituted this, um, no reason absentee voting. So you could just go show up at the county clerk say, hey, I'm not gonna be able to vote on voting day. They'd hand you a ballot, you can turn it in. So not only were we like, we could have been organizing 
five months before in Michigan to really turn out every single college student. And we had the money. Go, and we had the money to do it. And I, Dimitri, you've, you've done some math and I want you to talk about that, but like we could have been, <laughs> had, we, had we been there long-term, we could have gotten every single one of those college students who was in line waiting because the DNC like fucking sucks, right? We could have worked around that. There are ways to work around that entrenched power. Had we been there early, earlier, getting those kids to early vote, that would not have been a problem, right? It shouldn't have been a problem in the first place, but we could have worked around it and we didn't. And some people might say, oh, well, you know, it's a campaign. We ha you have to make hard decisions <laughs> on a budget, but Dimitri, you, you've done some math that I'm not capable of <laughs> <doing>. So <laughs> this is like very back of the envelope and obviously it's like not Girls accounting for- can't do math. <laughs> um, so I, you know, we had, like I said, we, there were about 200 of us that weren't redeployed from Iowa and New Hampshire combined. Um, mm -hmm. so it was around 200 or so. Um, and especially after Nevada, that was definitely around 200. Um, so the cost of keeping all of those staff on for another month, at least through Super Tuesday, if not like mid-March, um, for just four weeks or a month, we made about $3,500 a month. So um, before taxes or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so that would be um, $700,000 a month. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's not inclu not including you know insurance premiums whatever else costs go along with having that's pocket payroll. But, but for for, for a campaign dollars. that is making between thirty million forty million a quarter, right? The total cost of a staff this size would at no point been a liability, right? Could have been larger, frankly. Yeah, right. it could have been much um, larger. Yeah, we could have staffed up to like the level of the congressional district like across the entire country. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And, 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 and why not then spend that money on ads then, right? Like people might ask that question. Why choose organizers over ads or over other media spots? Um, I think it's kind of what we were saying earlier, you know, it's yeah. just when you're facing like a nearly unanimously hostile media, <laughs> Uh, communications is not going to be the make or break for you. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you, you really got to break through with the people on the ground and, and really discover what's important to them because a lot of people just haven't heard the issues framed in the particular way that we would yeah. talk about them. Um, and building those relationships is really just key. I mean, I think like kind of like we were saying with the, the Pete team, you know, once you build that relationship with somebody and you attach, you know, your relationship with them to the movement as well, it becomes really hard to like break through that. Like yeah. talking to people who are already Pete supporters in Iowa is like mm -hmm. talking to like a brick wall. Well, and like a lot like, of people like, <laughs> you know, it's, it's I, I <laughs> would get so pissed off talking to Pete supporters. I remember one, just <laughs> one time we, me, Mia, maybe you were there, but I was, we were community candidate. <laughs> We were, me and, actually I think this was when I was a volunteer. I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> Regardless, we were doing community canvassing at this LGBTQ gala in Des Moines. And community canvassing is just when you'd go to a, a public event and do crowd work, right? Just walk up mm -hmm. to strangers and be like, hey, do you like Bernie? I remember going there and it's gay people, lesbians, you know, transgender people. We were going and I walked to a group of lesbians. I'm like, hey guys, do you like Bernie? And like, this interaction literally ended with one of them being like, you need to walk away before I punch you. <laughs> because they were, <laughs> because they were, they were, God, what did you they say were, to that? 
well, they repeat lesbians. And I was just like, well, you know, like, I was trying to like uh, appeal to some kind of self-interest. Like, what is it that you care about? Why do you like Pete? You know, asking those open-ended a list of questions that, <laughs> that do actually work to get to, to get to what someone cares about. And it was all just like, well, Bernie is misogynist. Bernie cost Hillary the election. You know, Bernie's gonna, he's toxic, et cetera, et cetera. They called me a bro like three times. <laughs> and I just, uh... the one thing that I said that really pissed her off was she was like, Bernie people voted for Trump because they didn't win, they pouted. And I was like, well, you know, I mean, like, that might have been some, but it was never at the amount that it was like a critical mass. It was like, you know, actually, in fact, like, more Hillary people voted for McCain than Bernie people voted for Trump. You know, it was, it was a party movement. It was the Pumas, party unity my ass. So Hillary supporters <laughs> were so pissed that Obama got the nomination that they voted for McCain. I was like, it was really high. It was like a third of Hillary voters. I told her that, and she was like, if you don't get out of my face, I'm gonna fucking punch you. And so I walked away because she might invite the lesbian because she honestly probably would have kicked my ass. But well, you are <laughs> you are a very well known up Pete admirer, as I know, on the yeah. internet. Well, we won't get into that. We love Pete. We love Pete here. Um, I want to jump in real quick and say that lesbians <laughs> are the scariest people on earth, and uh, uh, like even scarier than than Islander uh, Latinos. <laughs> anyway, um, carry on. <laughs> Pete lesbians in particular, but thank you. Yeah, let, let's get back. Sorry, guys. Let's get back. <laughs> let's get back to the vegetables. Sorry, guys. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean. I think we've done a pretty good job of detailing what this distributed model was, where exactly it failed, and exactly you know like why it was a big departure from the central thesis of the Bernie campaign. Right, you could not expand the electorate given these circumstances. You just could not. Right, you could hardly do turnout for the base we did already have. Right, it did not help us in any way, and. I think when we get to talking about why is that we had around 10 staffers in Michigan, Texas, Washington, Massachusetts, Maine, you know, like all these states throughout Super Tuesday, even South Carolina, which was just a shit show, right? When we talk about like why these decisions were made, why these decisions that are a departure from what we needed to do, why were those made? You know, we've got to look at management and exactly detail like what the ideological rift here is because clearly they they were not operating in in tandem with what we needed to see with even the rhetoric of the campaign what our supporters wanted all of that was not that was not the basis for their decisions right um so let's talk a bit about the decisions made on the campaign by management and and why why we did them you know i think a good way to open up this conversation is to talk about the the electoral strategy that was kind of that was that was pursued by Fash Kier, campaign manager, with Jeff Weaver. It's clear to it's clear to, it's, it's fair to say that you know, and of course, like their deputies, like our, our field directors and stuff like that, they all made this decision to follow distributed organizing. But beyond that, they had. Uh, they had a plan that, you know, if we won Iowa, we won New Hampshire, we won Nevada, we could not win South Carolina. We could stand to lose South Carolina because that loss would be it's dented. It's already lost, right? It's already lost. Why try? You know, that loss would be dented by big win, a very big win in California, which honestly, we did not get. We won California by like seven points or something. They, they, they have the loss of South Carolina could be, could be dented by a big win 
in uh, California, it went in Texas, it went in Washington, Minnesota, Massachusetts, right? They thought that winning these first three states would give us the momentum we needed to lose South Carolina, sweep Super Tuesday. And at that point, they thought, hey, you know, if, if we win this much, the media, the party, they're just gonna, they're just gonna accept it. <laughs> they're just gonna let it happen. And Bernie will be, you know, uh, given front runner status. Like, or at least like people won't listen to the media yeah. narrative as much, right? The momentum yeah. will be enough to overcome whatever mm -hmm. is thrown at us. And that was the strategy that the campaign, I mean, it was working until Super Tuesday, right? That was the campaign that they, that was the strategy that they followed. Um, and of course it failed spectacularly, but not only does this strategy like betray movement politics that were essential to our win, it also betrays the idea that like Bernie was a formidable opponent to the, the powers that be, right? If Bernie is an existential threat to the corporate rule, if Bernie is an existential threat to the status quo of the Democratic Party, which I would say, you know, had we followed, had we stuck true to what our tenants were, we were that existential threat, right? But mm -hmm. if that's the case, why are you not expecting an un like an unprecedented consolidation of party power? Why are you not expecting bad faith smears by the media to be ramped up? Why are you not expecting voter suppression? Or even, you know, like, you, you couldn't expect this, but it just goes to show like the DNC was encouraging people to go vote in a pandemic, right? <laughs> there was clearly like no end to this. And the campaign was not, campaign management was not evaluating it to that. No, and I, I think kind of to your point is that the strategy was working to a certain extent. And I think mm -hmm. if it had been executed the way I think we all sort of conceived of it in our heads, or at least I did, you know, when they sort of said like, we're placing a big emphasis on the first four states and Super Tuesday states, right? Mm -hmm. And the thought was that Bernie racks up such a big lead by Super Tuesday that he's just kind of the inevitable nominee. And it seemed like it was trending that direction. And frankly, I think the campaign could have weathered a loss in South Carolina if it was five to 10 points. Which we lost by what, 30? 30, 30 points. 30 points, yeah. 29 point something. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that was like the forecast going into South Carolina, a 10 point loss was not out of the cards entirely. Mm -hmm. like, um, it could have happened if we had a field team that had been given the resources yep. that they needed, which the, it wasn't even just that, you know, they just didn't staff up enough or that, um, you know, maybe there were some strategic errors or something on the ground. South Carolina was intentionally deprived of resources by yeah. like staff. Um, because the, they, the, what distributed, what the distributed model is, the way I've been thinking about it to kind of give myself perspective here, essentially it is an austerity program or a kind of like- It's like Lyft. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like a Google, it's like a, it's like a Lyft or Uber or like middle, what is the term? Middle management marketing Multi, Multi-level, <laughs> yeah. Whatever, yeah. that bullshit. It's, it's, it's a form of austerity for a field program, right? And yeah, South Carolina was, was factored to be a loss. I think no one on the campaign expected us to lose by the margin we did, but not only, and this is another good way of thinking about it, like not only did distributed organizing keep us from winning, it kept us from losing. It kept us from like losing by a lesser margin, right? Had we lost 
South Carolina and Dimitri, I've heard you make this point before, but like, had we lost South Carolina by five points, by 10 points, maybe even by 15 points, Pete, uh, Klobuchar, the kind of fledgling centrist may not have had such an incentive to drop out and endorse Joe Biden because you know what? He only won South Carolina by mm-hmm. 10 points. So it's hard to say what a continued deep organizing model could have got us, but clearly it is, would have worked much better than, than what the current, than, than, than how it did pan out with the distributed model. Right. And I just want to make a quick modification if it's okay, time-wise, yeah, absolutely. Um, to like the statement before that, you know, maybe senior management didn't anticipate this consolidation. Do you guys see the labor report? Like, I just can't stop thinking about it ever since I read. The reason I ask is because um, the Labor Party in, mm-hmm. in the UK oh, um, pursued okay. a very similar <laughs> no, strategy. Jeremy Corbyn Sorry, did yeah, that wasn't clear. I thought you meant there was like some. They did distributed organizing. Yeah, no, Corbyn did distributed organizing. Yeah. Right. And that's all fine and well, whatever. Um, but now there's reports coming out. Um, and I'm not trying to make a connection between these two things directly at all. But like, mm-hmm. there are reports coming out that there were people on the campaign oh, high yeah. up purposely undermining Corbyn mm-hmm. because of who he was as a candidate, because there were internal divisions. They, the there was a whole and, like email cache that was leaked that was just like. Uh, talking about like how people in the camp they were they were scheming yeah, WhatsApp groups yeah literally and I'm not saying this hap- I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist that's not <laughs> what I'm saying right now the reason I'm bringing it up is because there are people so bought into this strategy mm-hmm. they are not willing to see the potential pitfalls mm-hmm. if such a consolidation or these factors are to come into play exactly. it's not even I don't want to say that like Weaver or Faz or whatever didn't think there would be opposition to Bernie's campaign like they're not no. dumb but there are pe- like they have advisors, you know, they have people who are in senior roles, um, very bought into the strategy. And it's mm-hmm. hard to break, a, break away from the belief that this is the way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and that has been entrenched since 2016. Yeah, I yeah. mean, like whether or not it was intentional, the function was still the same, right? Between right. Weaver and us, like I could care less whether or not Faz and Weaver were skating with like, near a tenant or something to like tank Bernie's right. campaign. Like, <laughs> I mean, that doesn't matter if the function is still similar, right? Like if they're still relying on these models that help tank Corbin, I could care less. Yeah, I mean, if you can't tell the difference between incompetence and malevolence, it doesn't really matter. Yeah. Right, um, it is and important I think, to understand though. Absolutely, I think, you know, that, absolutely. To my mind, I think, I don't think it was like intentional in that way where no. they were like actively sabotaging. I think it goes what, you know, Ben was saying is that they had a different conception, I think, of what Bernie represented than the rank and file field staff did, where they, I don't think, really saw Bernie as the type of threat to the Democratic Party infrastructure. I mean, maybe like certain sort of factions within the Democratic Party, but the overall party infrastructure in the same way that we did. And yeah. I think, um, also, I think, because I've heard that Faz had some reservations about the distributed program to a certain extent. Oh, really? Um, but I think a big motivating factor outside of just like you know, budgetary concerns, which weren't really, I don't think, Fake. Fake news. <laughs> um, but um, outside of that, I think it really was partly that um, there was a lot of internal tensions between the rank and file field staff mm-hmm. and, and senior mm-hmm. staff. Even and if you have less of them, you don't have to deal with them. 
basically. Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, we can, we can talk some about like the union here because I think the union was a big, um, a big factor in the decision to essentially cut back staff. But, but what you're saying, Dimitri, like, yeah, there is a division between low ranking staff and, and senior advisors, but even to take one, just like one very light step out of the framework of talking about solely about organizing, to talk about like wide, more widespread political strategy that, um, where I, I think the same um, division in ideology holds true, right? So among our, among like senior advisors, Jeff Weaver, Fashikir, um, have been found out to be the ones who are like, okay, you know what, Bernie, like don't go after Biden. It's not important to go after Biden. They were also the ones who, you know, of course, pursued this distributed model, believed in this flawed electoral strategy. They were also the ones who were like, you know, Bernie, it's time to drop out. Um, before, before Michigan voted, before, sorry, before Wisconsin voted, they were telling Bernie, you know, drop out, drop out. That shows that there, there actually is somewhat of, not even, there is an ideological difference here, right? They are, they are, these are the advisors who are consistently telling Bernie to do, to pursue uh, strategies that were not in keeping with the urgency of our message, right? And what brought out the movement that we saw, right? We had these advisors pushing Bernie away from that. Um, but let's talk about, about the union, right? I think, I think just as a lot of uh, the, the not me us sloganeering was used more to a rhetorical end than it was to a like, material end. <laughs> I don't know exactly how to, how to say that, but like, it, was, it was way more of a rhetorical tool for the campaign than, than it was actually followed through on the ground. Um, I personally, I was not too involved in the union, but it became pretty clear to me that there were union tensions and my idea of the union is the same as that movement rhetoric, right? Where the union was set up maybe in, in good faith in the beginning, but grew into be more of a, uh, something for Bernie to lean on to get him out of a rhetorical trap of not practicing his values or something, right? I know you guys have more, more uh, to say about the union. Yeah, really quickly, um, before we get into like the weeds of that, um, I think it's really important to emphasize why it's important to talk about the union. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the reason is that it's emblematic of all of the internal tensions on the campaign. And we've mm -hmm. talked already about senior staff, but there was also divisions among just regular staff too, because we had a whole national organizing team, which was essentially the heart of the distributed model, right? And then you had field staff and they had entirely different experiences. Um, you know, I'm not saying one was like good or bad necessarily, but there are people um, for, on the national team who were hired, like they didn't have, they weren't subject to the same um, uncertainties of their job as yeah. the field staff were. So like, you know, they were mostly located in DC, DC a lot of them, um, hired on early, stayed on for the whole duration of the campaign. So their interests within the union and, you know, the level of militancy to exercise was not the same yeah. um, as field staff. And also it was not the same in terms of strategy. So like, these are also people bought into the distributed model fully um, because they're not on the ground. They're not there organizing. Um, and again, both works have their merits, but um, mm -hmm. it caused kind of an ideological tension too of what the best strategy to pursue was. So there was a really, really big rift there. So I don't know, Dimitri, if you have more specifics there. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely true. I think a lot of it like, so it has to do with sort of there's just those like material factors. I think just like, you know, they, um, 
they were much more secure in their jobs. Um, yeah. So the urgency to act really wasn't there. They're also just literally closer to the management, like just physically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and it's a cultural difference too. Yeah, it is. It is. Material, yeah. whatever. Um, <laughs> and I think, you know, I mean, this is maybe a little bit more conjectury to a certain extent, but like, if you look at sort of the makeup of a lot of like the national staff versus like the rank and file local staff, um, a lot of like national staff, whether it was policy team, political team, comms, whatever, come from that sort of like progressive nonprofit sort of world. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rank and file field staff came from, I mean, uh, some of us were like, you know, activist organizers beforehand. We're all rank um, and file though. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, sense. you know, I know, you know, like Ben, you were, you know, I was a tables, waiter. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was a waiter. Um, yeah. And uh, I just graduated from school. Um, you know, I think it was much more the working class, you know, kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I think that that might have been a factor as well. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. I think with I, the union. Oh, go ahead. No, no, no. Go, go, go. Oh, I was just going to say, because I love telling this story to people who haven't heard it before about <laughs> the union. And um, when the union worker or the, when the workers first announced that they were unionizing, which is something I actually wasn't there for, it was a couple months before I got on the campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, apparently, um, Faz called the Iowa field staff, which is where the unionizing was taking place, uh, and just cussed them out for five minutes and then hung up. Um, so Damn. I don't know. He might have he might have picked up some habits from his old boss near Tandon. I guess <laughs> she punched him <laughs> in the face, which uh, I've said before. But the the one good thing she's ever done in her fucking life. I, I, there are a few things that happened on the union that I think now that we've established like kind of the, the timeline of how the campaign uh, worked, we can go into like where the union fit in um, because there were measures, you know during the redeployment process where many people were finding out that, hey, you know, there are not, there's not going to be the staff that we need to win in Michigan and Texas, et cetera, et cetera. When people were finding out that, like, we were not pursuing the strategy that won us these first three states, there, were, there was action taken by the staff to pressure management into course correcting, right? Mia, do you want to talk about that? Because I know you you've got more insight there than I do. Yeah, I was a little involved with that. You know, there were, I wasn't a shop steward or anything. So, um, you know, uh, I don't have all the information, but I want to say that, like, even before people were aware of the plans for redeployment, there were union actions um, and committees set up and all, like, petitions, letters sent in regards to the transparency of management, because that was our main concern um, for a long time in Iowa, right? Um, and later on, it would prove to be like a bigger can, omen of what was- Can you specify um, transparency around what issues in, in particular, yeah, or just, just across like, the board? Across the board, I mean, like people didn't feel like they could give input on how to do things. Um, I know personally, people I worked with, um, if they tried to pass like critiques up the chain, they'd kind of get shut down. Um, mm-hmm. There was no clear way to communicate with upper management about anything really. Um, mm-hmm. And there were, you know, other issues um, regarding like overtime and regarding safety and like all kinds mm-hmm. of things that, you know, but you don't have to get. I, I can say one, one thing that's I think illustrative of this is the constituency program. Um, 
because for for a long time, um, Dimitri, you're laughing at me. <laughs> but I, this is this is like right after I was I was hired, and I remember like stepping into this, be like, oh shit, this is, this is not a good sign. But it was at an all staff meeting. Many organizers wore all black to kind of show like a widespread discontent with the fact that we did not have specific organizing efforts for. Uh, for black people, for racial and ethnic minorities um, across the board. We did not have those organizing efforts, which did, again, prove our central thesis that we can expand the electorate and win because of it. Those programs were not uh, implemented. And even when there were attempts to, to point out that, that we were lacking here, it's clear that organizers who were right about this were forced to the point of like taking a collective action of their own to show management how, how like, pissed off everyone was about it. And it wasn't even just field organizers. I remember hearing that Nina Turner sat down with black organizers and asked what is happening for specific outreach to organize, but not to like pander to black people, not to do like virtue signaling or whatever, but to actually organize in black real communities, organizing. right? Real organizing, what real organizing is being done in black communities. And when she was told there were no specific, specific efforts for that, she clearly was not. <laughs> happy about that either and and it did change and it did prove to be a winning shout strategy for Turner. us yeah shout out to nina turner she's been on the right side the whole time. we love you nina <laughs> i was so looking forward to vice president nina turner <laughs> i know uh, a nina turner mike pence debate would be oof, oh, can, you, fire. can you imagine oh fire but yeah he would, would be like <laughs> Like he that would end one up, is, is like the part one of reparations and that would be <laughs> so fucking <laughs> he would end up crying but but sorry, sorry to cut you off, Mia. It's just that that right there is a very is a very clear example of the fact that there is a long-standing tension here between field staff and management. Where field staff is attempting to get attempting to correct course, right, and not being listened to. Um, you can continue unless I've completely. Oh, yeah. No, 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 not at all. I was just going to make a quick point. I mean, we don't have to get into the details of all of, like the things that happen within the union, but. You know, there there were efforts to organize. Um, they were shut down pretty quickly and it was incredibly hard to organize, um, partially because of just the structure of the job. You know, people are in remote different towns all around Iowa. It's very hard to get people on the same page, but also because there was a widespread fear of damaging the campaign um, mm -hmm. brought by it, like getting, you know, word getting out that staff are unhappy, that the management mm -hmm. isn't transparent. That, you know, very plausibly could have hurt um, us because it would get out, it would get to media, and it would, would get to media. They yeah. would spin it in all yeah. types of terrible ways, and people were terrified of that, pretty yeah. rightfully. Um, but to a certain point, um, at least from my perspective, it got to a point where um, we realized that the, the campaign was not going to go in the direction of truly grassroots structure or transparency. Mm -hmm. um, and many of us believed that that outweighed um, that threat outweighed the possibility of something getting out because that could have actually worked as leverage to get yeah. somebody like fast to pay attention. Yeah. Um, I know yeah. when we were because I was sort of somewhat involved in drafting that that letter. Um, that, that can you, you can, earlier. can we specify what the letter what the letter was intended to do like what, what the contents yeah, of the letter? Yeah, which letter are we talking about? There were several. <laughs> there were several. Yeah, there were several letters. <laughs> Love uh, to write letters. <laughs> the, uh, it was right after we were not redeployed from Iowa. There okay. were several field staff got together. Um, I believe the, I just wanted to mention this as far as like leverage points and things we wanted to talk about with uh, the media and the public that, that mm -hmm. didn't get released. Um, the major sort of leverage point that we were thinking about using was 
um, this uh, call that we had had with the union in like mid January or whatever, where they had mentioned that the if Bernie was to get the nomination, um, it would be uh, the responsibilities of the field campaign would be turned over uh, to the Democratic National Convention, which might sound crazy to people who aren't really familiar with like the internal. That's, that's just how it always happens. It is how it always works. Yeah, yeah just um, it's folded in. Right. Yeah. So, you know, the Democrats just start running your campaign, basically, mm -hmm. which um, now that we know, you know, what happened in the UK with Corbyn, <laughs> it seems like that would have been a fatal mistake. They would have. Oh, my and, God. Can you imagine? They would have fucking tanked it. Yeah. Yeah. So there was already discussions after that call that we were either planning on unionizing the uh, DNC uh, field staff or uh, convincing senior Bernie staff to not turn over field mm -hmm. operations to the DNC mm -hmm. um, or really any campaign operations to the DNC, um, which I think would have been the right thing to do. Um, but um, I think it goes back to that ideological difference that you were speaking to earlier, is that I think Faz, Weaver, the sort of more democratic infrastructure aligned mm -hmm. um, advisors in the campaign, I don't think were on board with that kind of action. Um, yeah. And I, I don't know that, I don't think, you know, that it was a conscious thing, like, oh, we're gonna lay off all the staff so they can't do that. Um, but I think um, had a lot of us been able to stick around through April well, or May, yeah. we might have seen yeah, I mean, like, concrete action being taken there. If, if their goal is to essentially run a traditional campaign with a traditional top-down structure, you know, why would you then, if your goal is to have control, essentially, right? Why would you then continue to keep on a 200-some unionized staff? Especially, why would you increase that unionized staff? You would, it would eventually, you know, jeopardize the amount of power you have because clearly there was already this uh, contentious relationship between these two, uh, these two parties within, within our campaign. Um, but, no. Faz Shakir does come from, like, he was working with Harry Reid, he was working with Nancy Pelosi, you know, he was even working, I don't know if this was ever published as a story or something, but uh, a little birdie out there was <laughs> told me that uh, there was a piece being written in uh, a publication about Faz Shakir's work at the ACLU. Um, he was a director at the ACLU, and he essentially was turning over uh, he, he was changing the role of what that operation at the ACLU was was intended to do and essentially making it an auxiliary arm of the Democratic Party, right? Which someone given that background... He's a hack. He, he's a hack, right? Someone given that background to then be the campaign manager for the Bernie Sanders campaign is a little befuddling. But it really does beg to ask the question, one, who else could have been there? And then two does just the traditional structure that the Bernie Sanders campaign had, regardless of the union, does that structure itself preclude any kind of truly grassroots, um, I don't want to say non-hierarchical, because of course you need hier an, uh, uh, hierarchical organization. I don't want to do like jazz hands, like um, <laughs> Occupy <laughs> stuff, because clearly that, that's, that's ineffective. But you can meet somewhere in the middle there where you do not have such a... Uh, a traditional stringent 
um, consolidated campaign. Mia, you were making this argument very well earlier. Um, go ahead, take it yeah. over. I, I will, yeah, I'll speak to that in just a second. Just before we move away from the union stuff, I wanted to really quickly make the point also that um, there was a lot, just going back to like the fear of things getting out and we're getting mm -hmm. out about labor tensions. It was used, it, it wasn't just coming from the top, right? There was a lot of mm -hmm. division among staff on the ground too mm -hmm. about what was strategic to do. And a lot of the time that fear was used against us um, mm -hmm. organizing. So like, oh, you want this to leak, you want, like you want Bernie to fail, you're not committed. And that's typical anti-union language that is prevalent um, among people who are, if you're not careful, basically. Um, and just a lesson kids, like the, the more militant your union, the better, because I'm not saying this would have saved us necessarily, but if we had a, a militant rank and file on the ground, right? Who was ready to mobilize um, the second management misstepped or like showed that they were not willing to listen to us, um, you know, bam, work stoppage, bam, yeah. like whatever else. We could have potentially changed the path of our strategy um, using mm -hmm. that control and leverage that we had. Unfortunately, we did not have that leverage. So I think that is a big reason and a big lesson on just why unions are so goddamn important. Um, yeah. But to go back to what the point that you were uh, making about uh, just the structural setup of the campaign, right? Like we've been talking a lot about um, you know, where our advisors were coming from and kind of their different perspectives and ideologies. And I just want to add, like, it's very important to have, forgive me for being insufferable, but it's important to have a structural analysis of no, absolutely. what the campaign was, um, because they couldn't have understood yeah. what was going on, on the ground by virtue of their position, by virtue of their income, by virtue mm -hmm. of their proximity to Bernie, mm -hmm. um, you know, the fancy events they went to, whatever else. Um, it's like I said this before, but it's literally Marx 101, right? Like I wish somebody wrote a book about this, right? The, the importance of your power and its relationship to how you um, uh, perceive the truth or whatever. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it's it's completely a structural issue. And if you don't mm -hmm. reinvent, if you don't disrupt the, the campaign structure, um, um, you're not no, going to get the same results. It's yeah. like the definition of insanity. You're not yeah, going to yeah, get yeah. a different yeah. campaign by doing the same thing um, that all other campaintes do. And again, we could have... Yeah, oh, no, sorry, Dimitri, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, like, as far as like the structure and you thought about, you know, what's that sort of sweet spot, right? Between like the sort mm -hmm. of hierarchy that you need to like coordinate strategy and like message discipline and things like that. That's important, right? Um, yeah. But, and, and like, you know, and have that sort of room to maneuver within like local communities on the ground and really have like deep organizing. And I think, um, one thing that's striking to me is like, you know, we're especially working in like um, where I was, I actually, one of my volunteers was on staff in 2016. Um, and mm -hmm. so we, we sort of like swap stories about the difference between like 2016 and 2020. Um, and I think a lot of people, you know, might not realize this, but like the 2016 campaign was like mostly an accident. Um, yeah. In terms of like its <laughs> success. Um, and I think, you know, Bernie, you know, God love him. He, I, he is a really skilled him. politician, you know, I, he genuinely is. We love um, Bernie. But, Did we but he's not, he would have been he's, probably the, the best president this country has ever seen. Yeah. Like no, no, but he's not a camp. He's not really a campaign strategist though. Um, and sure, he, but he would have been, he, he would have been a great president. Like, no, that's I, I'm so, inclined to agree. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so he, um, 
he wasn't really super aware of like what was going on on the ground in 2016, yeah. honestly. And I think um, what happened to a certain extent was that there were a bunch of people that were hired in 2020 who kind of made their bones off of the back of the 2016 mm. movement. Um, mm -hmm. You know, some of the senior field staff, senior advisors, people who went into like people who went into Sunrise or Our Revolution or whatever, Sunrise. and came back came back to work on the campaign in 2020. Yeah, yeah, um, right. The, and the I think there was a certain extent of like getting high off their own supply. You know what I mean? Mm. Like that they sort of really bought in that like they had cracked it in like 2016. <laughs> um, I, you, you know what I mean? I I, I guess yeah, I, I can't I, again like like we've been saying, I we can't I can't actually like exactly like blame them as individuals it just goes to show that like what the effort that we were trying to undertake here right to amass a movement large enough to to seize institutional power of the democratic party right and and affect things like medicare for all etc cetera, etc cetera. we like we did not stay true to to that route of change or we did not operate based off of that that tenant, um, and that's where I that's where I see some of our biggest failures. Right, of course, people will say people can list off any kind of external forces. Right, like I'm, I'm this whole thing is just to speak specifically about the organizing missteps, why they've happened. Um, I think we've got most of it covered. I mean, as much as we can, we could clearly talk about this for hours and hours. But just to move to see. The, the case that we've laid out, right? I think we still see that in action, right? Bernie, of course, has dropped out, but when we see which advisors still have power to, I guess, I don't know what, change, like, like pull Joe Biden left, which is insane to me. I don't think that's going to happen, but we have had this, uh, this task force. Whatever's left of him. Yeah, we, <laughs> we have had this, uh, this task force, you know, set up to ostensibly uh, convince Biden to adopt uh, policy platforms from us and how he can integrate them with his own. If you look at who is being excluded from these things, who is being distanced by the campaign, it's a distance from the campaign, from their, the marginal amount of power that campaign still has, the ones being distanced are Nina Turner, they are Brianna Joy Gray, they are David Sirota, the ones that were acting with acting in accordance with the stated goals and the organizing principles of the campaign. Those people are now being pushed out. And Bashakir, Jeff Weaver, I don't know, the other ones. Because they didn't get in line, yeah. Because Exactly. And, and so this, this goes to show that like the case we're making is still happening. <laughs> it's still in action. And we've, we've got to learn from these mistakes. Now, I don't have any clear answer to, to what the next step is. I know everyone wants to know. But I know that before we, we, we get there in good faith, we have got to really take, we've got to have a sober criticism of what went wrong internally in the campaign. And we can't, we can't be doomers about it and say, well, it's all fucked, nothing's ever going to happen. And we can't be triumphant about it. You know, I see a lot of people out there saying, oh, well, you know, this is just the first step. And it's like, no, like, we need to be honest about what, <laughs> what we've lost here, right? Like Bernie Sanders, the movement we had was, it's crazy to even think about how close we've gotten, right? We need to be really honest with ourselves that we have lost what is a product of such a specific circumstance that 
it, it, it's so rare. We probably will not see it again in our lifetime. So yeah. we've got to be calling it a first to... step is insulting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. frankly, in, insulting and belittling. And if you keep saying that, then then honestly, yeah. Megan Day, long, hard Megan Day I'm I'm looking at you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Megan Day, like please just you've like, been called out. Or something. Wow, like, wow. Get, get, okay, get, well, <laughs> get get that. Save that or, for another episode. <laughs> that, that's your Patreon. I'll cut this yeah, out. Yeah. Uh, but 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 really, you know, we've we've got to find a way here where we can we can soberly assess what has gone wrong and find what the way forward is here. The first step is, is having that, that transparent assessment that we've done be out there for everyone to, to take their own inventory of. Do you guys have anything to add when it comes to like next steps, any specific organizations that you think you'd like to direct people to anything else? Cause I'm honestly kind of at a loss. <laughs> um, uh, oh, go ahead. Um, no, you go first. Okay. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I, I myself, am a, I'm a dues-paying member of DSA in Chicago. Um, I, you know, I definitely acknowledge that there are valid criticisms of certain chapters of the organization as well as like the national leadership yeah. in, in certain areas. Um, but I think overall it has a, a good balance of some of the features that we've talked about. I mean, mm -hmm. it's pretty open. Uh, and, and democratic in its structure. Um, there's a lot of input from, you know, ground level members, especially on the chapter level. Mm -hmm. um, and I think um, it's also, you know, it's a membership based organization in terms of its funding, mm -hmm. which is something that I've definitely become uh, much more aware of. I think <laughs> since working for Bernie is sort of the mm -hmm. amount of uh, nonprofit grifting that there is mm -hmm. out there. Mm -hmm. um, so if you can find either just a, a flat broke nonprofit or <laughs> organizing group or a group that has uh, membership funding, that's probably the route to go. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think for me, as far as next steps strategically, um, I don't think that the answer is um, AOC 2024. Um, no. not gonna, um, <laughs> no. the, and I think this primary <laughs> has also shown too that the it's, it eats up so much resources I think that could be going mm -hmm. to other projects um, and I think also one thing that this has definitely demonstrated to me is that the Democratic Party has an infrastructure on the, mm -hmm. uh, for their primaries anyway they suck at winning general elections mm -hmm. but um, on the local and the state level, they have... It's almost as if they only exist to contain the left and serve yeah, a larger almost. purpose. <laughs> almost. So I think, you know, a, a project that we can work on to a certain extent, if your route is electoral politics, and I think there's mm -hmm. definitely critiques of that route, um, is sort of finding a way that we can replicate that local and state level infrastructure, building networks of, of, of activists, of elected officials that we can trust that are rigorously... Mm -hmm. ideologically disciplined, you know, so mm -hmm. we don't have any more, you know, mm -hmm. I, I, we don't need any more justice Democrats where Ayanna Presley endorses <laughs> Elizabeth Warren. Um, we don't, uh, yeah, yeah, we don't need any more of that. Exhausting. <laughs> I'm tired. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that, that's exactly it. Yeah. Yeah. Me personally, I'm not really interested in any progressive organizations. Like if you, yeah. you don't have the stones to call yourself socialist, I'm not really interested. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, whatever socialist means to you, I think that you at least got to get to that label. 
Um, yeah. Maybe, you know, I think there, some socialists don't count, but they're, they're, you at least got to get to that label. Um, and I think, um, yeah, I, for me, it's also just an everything at once kind of strategy. You know, we need to be doing labor sure. organizing, community organizing, yeah. electoral organizing, and doing it all at the same time. And mm -hmm. I think a really good way to do that is that sort of deep organizing strategy mm -hmm. that the campaign mm -hmm. had in some places. You know, we can really build networks that are really based around the issues that are affecting communities where they live, you know, um, and use that for whatever ends that you want to use it for, whether it's to do a sit-in or um, a protest or, um, you know, a calling campaign, letter writing campaign, your yeah, yeah. official, whether it's running for office, there's, you can activate that base for any purpose, but I think building that base is really the next step. Definitely. Yeah. Pardon Mia, I have any, any solutions? Any, any? Yeah, I have yeah, actually you've got all, you've got the, answers all the answers. Right answers. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's have it at it. Um, yeah. I mean, just like parting thoughts, I guess, is just, First of all, like to, to summarize everything of what we're saying to listeners, right? Like, this, yeah. I hope that this is like invigorating to people or like inspiring, um, not because, not like our, ourselves talking in general, but just like the message <laughs> that we're trying to send here is not a depressing one. It's, um, it's, to me, it's hopeful, right? Because we didn't, if I had known that we pulled all of the strings and pulled out all of our, whatever, tricks in our sleeves um, and still lost, that would be discouraging. But in yeah. fact, we didn't. Um, so we yeah. have a ton of opportunity to do that. And I think one of the main things we have to do is like remember Bernie's campaign as an unprecedented consolidation of the left um, and demonstration of the power of the left. Mm. We're still very small, but mm. that was a great example of how we should be um, making ourselves central in the fight rather than staying in the margins. Um, you mm -hmm. know, obviously local organizing is extremely important, but we cannot scatter back into our respective um, things with mm -hmm. and not like demand more power as we have been in this election. So I think that's really important to remember. Can I plug a book? Is that like- Yeah, uh, for sure. <laughs> um, is it your book? Jane McAlevey. Yeah, your book. To this. No, I have never written a book, unfortunately. <laughs> I'm sure people would love that. Just kidding. Um, Jane McAlevey, this organizer who I love, wrote this book called No Shortcuts. Um, I don't remember the full title, but it's a, it's a guide to organizing essentially and it has lots of examples. But the title says it all, right? There, there's no yeah. fucking shortcuts to organizing. Like It's a long, it slow sounds, build. It's a yeah. slow process. And Bernie, Bernie is completely... A, a, a like anomaly to this mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and he like yeah organizing is something that is a science or an i forget what she said oh god she's gonna kill me um whatever <laughs> it's it's a science yeah it takes certain um training it takes certain things and and discipline um yeah. and we cannot if anything sounds like it's too easy it's not gonna work okay so no fucking shortcuts guys mm -hmm. and um just really quickly to, to end, um, I was asked earlier today on a different uh, panel uh, about how to reconcile, <laughs> right, like this procedural diagnosis we have of like not having enough field staff, not uh, doing specific things as campaign strategy with the fact that we didn't turn out, you know, independent voters in the same way that we did last time. We didn't turn mm. out certain people who went for us, but didn't this time around, like the disenfranchised folks who don't even normally vote. Um, mm -hmm. And I, to that, I said like, and I think it's a good way to bring all of this home is that our messaging is our organizing. Those two things are, mm -hmm. are irreconcilable because 
if we, you know, no matter how popular a platform is, if we don't have people there to talk to people about it, there are people in rural places um, and in certain communities who we knocked on their door for the very first time ever as mm -hmm. a campaign. Um, so if we are not there to spread the message that we are preaching, um, people won't hear about it because of the media bias, because of all of those things that we talk about mm -hmm. so much. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, no shortcuts, guys, please. <laughs> yes, yes, queen. Okay. Um... That thanks thanks for listening, guys. Um, that is about it on the the episode here. Um, Mia, Dimitri, thanks so much for coming. Yeah, thanks uh, so much, guys. Too. Talking with it's us. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. All right. Um, bye, guys. Moi. Moi. Bye, y'all. Bye. bye.